This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us on the Law Books Network. My name is Myra Hauser, and I'm speaking today with Melissa Mielewski of the University of Sussex. We'll be discussing her book, Litigating Across the Color Line, Civil Cases Between Black and White Southerners from the End of Slavery to Civil Rights. Melissa, welcome to the show. And if you would, please just give us a little bit of background about yourself. Who are you? How did you come to this project? What are you working on now? Hi, thank you so much for having me on today. So again, my name is Melissa Milevsky, and my area of research is race and the law. I got my PhD in history and and uh, since then have been teaching um, first at Columbia and now at the University of Sussex here in England. I first actually came to this project um, at the beginning of my PhD dissertation, and I knew that I wanted to do something on um, on race um, in the U.S. South, and I was um, going to various archives, kind of trying to find interesting sources at the Georgia Archives. I always recommend um, talking to archivists um, as much as possible, and he suggested that I take a look at these um, state Supreme Court cases in the Georgia Archives and mention that um, few scholars had looked at them, but they were a really interesting source. So I called, um, called up some of the cases and started to look at them. And I found the cases to be an incredibly rich source um, to study African-American history. And just as the archivist had said, one that few other scholars, um, legal scholars or historians, um, had looked at um, in very much depth before. That's fantastic. Um, and one of the things that I think is so impressive about your work and about this book is just the richness of the archives, like you mentioned, not just in Georgia, but in several other states as well. Can you give us a bit of a, um, excuse me, a bit of a summary of the book? We'll be discussing it in a little bit more detail as our conversation proceeds. But for our listeners, um, what is this book about? What are you arguing and why should we read it? Absolutely. So um, scholars, both kind of legal scholars and historians, have long assumed that African-Americans litigated few civil cases um, in the post-Reconstruction U.S. South. There's a few reasons um, why they've made this assumption. Um, For one, the criminal cases that um, scholars have looked at um, in great depth um, show huge injustices against African-Americans. And so it seemed quite unlikely that African-Americans would be able to actually um, litigate civil cases and bring such cases um, against whites if they're receiving such 
um, unequal sentences um, in the criminal justice system. And and additionally, um, when scholars have looked at um, some of these um, cases, they've oftentimes looked at cases that focus on issues of race. Um, So cases over racial discrimination, um, cases looking at at, um, at sexual relations um, between people across the color line. And in these types of cases, um, these types of civil cases, African-Americans um, oftentimes fared quite poorly. Um, and so there was the, kind of that evidence. And then there was just some anecdotal evidence um, in kind of newspapers, magazines, kind of complaints about kind of the injustices in the civil um civil courts. And so as a result, there was just this assumption that um, that African-Americans really weren't able to litigate very many civil cases, particularly against whites. And if they were, they were going to um, very likely um, be able to be losing such cases. And what my book um, is showing, um, and I analyzed almost 1,400 um, cases, and I found um focused on the approximately 1,000 cases that Black litigants um, were litigating against white Southerners. And I found a very different story um, in these cases. Um, So these cases took place across eight states, um, and they're in the state Supreme Courts of each each state. And I found that ordinary Black Southerners are bringing um, civil cases against whites. They're bringing cases not just... Um, about issues that kind of directly think about race, but they're bringing cases over property, personal injury, contracts, um, bequests, the kind of similar kinds of cases in some ways that um, whites are bringing against each other. These very kind of ordinary types of cases in some ways. But as they're bringing these cases against whites, um, they're actually also surprisingly successful. So across these eight states and there's almost a thousand cases, found that they're winning 59% um, of their suits against whites. So I would say that the central question of my book is really, how are they able to litigate um, cases against whites, particularly kind of in the depths of kind of Jim Crow when they've been disfranchised, segregation has set in around the South. How are they still litigating um, cases against white Southerners? And how are they winning um, these cases against white Southerners? And my book really kind of answers um, those two questions. That's fantastic. And I think one of the points that you raise um, as well is that, of course, race relations are shifting in the United States South. At this time, can you talk a little bit about the ways in which these cases are maybe uh, foregrounded or interlaid over other political events that are occurring and just kind of how this general kind of movement through Reconstruction influences or is influenced or is kind of uh, placed next to these cases? Yes. So this is a really important part of my book because I show that African-Americans are able to litigate cases um, against white throughout the period from 1865 um, through 1950. But I also show that the cases are shifting. Um, The cases that they can bring and the arguments that are necessary to win shift um, over these periods. And they don't necessarily always shift um, at the time that you would expect them to, but they're still very tied to what's going on in the larger society. So I think that you might expect that these cases would dramatically shift at the end of Reconstruction, 
Um, so Reconstruction is gradually kind of um, ending throughout the South, but kind of comes to kind of a firm end um, in 1877 as kind of democratic um, kind of dem- the Democratic Party takes back control um, in these states. And I think it's at this point that you would think that perhaps African-Americans would lose um, their ability um, to litigate and win cases against whites. But I found that it's actually not at this point um, that there's any kind of real significant shift um, in their kinds of cases. Um, So they're continuing to bring similar cases as they brought um, during Reconstruction, um, during the two decades um, after Reconstruction ends. And I argue that this is in part because the Republican Party um, remains in the South, even though it's no longer in power. Um, many Black men are still voting um, in these two decades after Reconstruction ends, um, even though there's many kind of barriers that are being put up to try to prevent them from voting and prevent their vote from, cast, uh, from, from counting. But I found it's actually when they're disfranchised. Um, at the end of the 19th century and at the beginning of the 20th century, this very kind of formalized um, segregation um, is being put into Southern law um, at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. This is where I see a really kind of significant shift um, in these kinds of cases. Um, and at this point, um, the kinds of cases that they're able to bring become much more limited. Um, they're largely only bringing cases um, involving personal injury um, and fraud, um, kind of fraud where they've been defrauded out of their land by a white person um, at, during the first two decades of the 20th century. And in these types of cases, in order to kind of um, meet the legal um, requirements of showing personal injury and fraud, African-Americans also had to um, be able to to kind of show um, in personal injury cases, for instance, they had to show kind of about their injury, kind of present themselves as vulnerable in fraud cases to emphasize their inequality um, in knowledge with the person who defrauded them, their kind of lack of business knowledge, oftentimes their illiteracy. Um, and all of these things are necessary during this time to make these kind of cases, but they're also kind of reinforcing in some ways um, the disfranchisement and segregation that have set in. Um, and so this very limited type of case is the kind of case um, that's being able to, that African-Americans are able to bring um, after disfranchisement sets in. And then I see another interesting shift um, that begins again in the 1920s until my story ends um, in 1950. And during this time, I see more and more kind of claims of rights um, by African-Americans. So they're still bringing the same kinds of cases in many ways. So kind of personal injury cases, cases over wills, um, cases over contracts. Um, and the kinds of cases they, that they're able to bring broaden out once again in the 1920s. They're not so restricted um, as they were in the first two decades of the 20th century. Um, but increasingly in the 1920s, um, they're also bringing, they're also kind of as they're bringing these cases over personal injury, for instance, they're also making broader claims um, about their rights and broader claims for African-Americans' rights as a whole. And I would argue that this is related to kind of different developments that are occurring, including the Great Migration, where more and more African-Americans are moving out of the South, moving to the North and West, and 
um, being able to vote once again um, in the North and the West. And so we see again kind of these ties to kind of political power with the kinds of cases um, that they're able to bring um, in Southern courts. And I think that's so important, too, to note that there's kind of this tension, or maybe not tension, but contrast between the individual and the communal, right? So law is by nature precedent. Whatever you're doing is going to be to some degree communal. Um, But so many of your litigants at the beginning are uh, bringing these cases, just like you said, for a very basic, somebody didn't pay me correctly, they took my property, um, for very kind of individual reasons, and then moving on to setting the scene for the civil rights movement where we see these larger lawsuits that are supposed to... um, impact the lives of, you know, people on a large scale and are very intentionally supposed to address larger uh, kind of racial issues. Can you speak about the degree to which these cases differ within states and maybe what, um, you've already spoken to this a little bit um, and speaking about how the great migration impacts this, but what motivates African-Americans to bring these cases to court? And then how do those play out differently in the different areas that you look at? So there, I think there's a, a few questions there. And so maybe I'll start with um, thinking about the individual nature of these cases. And I think in some ways, this is why historians and kind of legal scholars have not really noticed um, these cases very much before, because they are very um, individual um, in nature for much of the time. And even beginning in the 1920s, um, most of the cases still kind of um, are brought by individuals. They are most primarily benefiting um, individuals. So they're very kind of an individual-oriented um, type of action. And I would argue that, in part, it's the very kind of individual nature of this type of action that allows them to continue, um, that makes them um, quite a bit more unthreatening to white Southerners um, than cases that um, are brought on by by organizations and are kind of seeking rights um, for larger groups of African-Americans. So the very individual nature of the cases allows them to occur um, at a time when African-Americans have lost um, all of these other rights. And I think that the cases very much kind of show um, the the opportunities within individual action and also the limitations within individual action. So the opportunity, I think, within individual action is it's able to occur um, when when kind of other types of actions are much more difficult. Um, It's at a very grassroots level. So individuals are bringing these cases over over kind of issues that are important to their own kind of economic futures. Um, So it's in some ways a much more kind of grassroots um, kind of action that involves more ordinary people um, than perhaps kind of the NAACP legal action um, that's going on um, during the first half of the the 20th century. But it also shows the real limits um, of individual action. So they have less resources um, because this is kind of individual action. And as I said, kind of for much of this, they are, um, it's only really kind of beginning in the 1920s that um, they're really able to kind of bring these larger, um, larger claims. Um, so, but I think it really does show the importance of focusing on individual action, as well as collective action, um, and thinking about um, trying to, to um, assert um, rights during this time. And I'd argue that that's kind of one of the things that I'm, I'm trying to do um, in my book. 
Um, so there was a few kind of other questions there. One is just kind of how these differ um, across states. Um, and again, I'm looking at eight states um, all across the South here, um, states that are very different um, in many ways. So I have Virginia, North Carolina um, on kind of the, um, the east, um, the coast. Um, these states that have been established and have been um, around for um, for, set, for kind of um, for for a long time. And then I have um, other states that are kind of um, have come into um, the union much more recently, such as Arkansas, um, Mississippi, um, and um, states that um, are in the kind of the deep south, such as Georgia and Alabama. And a state that didn't succeed um, during the Civil War, but still had slavery, um, Kentucky. So there's extraordinary kind of differences um, across these states um, that I'm looking at. Um, differences in um, the uh, proportion of African-Americans um, and whites in the population um, as well. And what what's quite interesting that I found is despite the huge differences across these states, the patterns that I see in kind of the types of litigation that African-Americans are bringing during different periods of time and the shifts that I'm seeing kind of in their litigation and then just how often African-Americans are winning um, is really kind of a regional um, pattern that is occurring across all of these um, widely varied states that really kind of have as the main thing tying them together that they were all slave states. Another question that you had was kind of just the differences in individual action across states. Is that is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was. So I guess I think that the, I mean there are some differences um, across states, but they're not necessarily kind of the differences that you might expect. So some states um, in the deep south, for instance, such as Georgia, um, African Americans are. Um, litigating um, and bringing um, a large number um, of cases. And Virginia, for instance, kind of um, a more up an upper south state, um, they're not bringing as many cases. So I think it's, it's not necessarily kind of the patterns um, are not necessarily kind of what you would expect, kind of thinking about kind of the upper or lower south or um, um, these other kind of differences between these states. But they're really kind of occurring as a region. And within this region, we've talked a lot, obviously, about the African-American litigants in these cases. Who are the whites who are involved, the lawyers, the judges, um, and certainly the plaintiffs, or um, in some cases, defendants, or I guess in more cases, defendants, in several of these cases? This is a very important part of my work as well. And initially, as I started looking at these cases, um, I was really telling the story of the black litigants. Um, within these cases, and I was um, very focused on kind of their side um, of the story, what they were doing um, in these court cases, how they were testifying, kind of making their arguments. But I, I realized over time in writing the book that it wasn't possible to fully kind of tell their stories with think, about thinking about all the participants in these cases. So without thinking about the white lawyers, um, and it is almost always kind of white lawyers um, who've taken on their cases, um, about thinking about the largely white juries, um, the uh, largely white judges, and to understand kind of the motivations of kind of the white um, participants in these cases. 
Um, and not to mention the white litigants um, in these cases, too, who are oftentimes um, during the first decades of the period I look at, former masters um, of the African-Americans bringing these cases. And in later periods, sometimes um, their employers um, or, um, or landowners whose land they're working. Um, and so I looked at kind of um, the involvement of all of these groups as well. And just briefly, particularly interested in the involvement of the white lawyers um, in these cases and why they would take on cases involving um, and represent um, black litigants who are bringing litigation against whites um, in their communities. And I found that it often at times came down to money, um, just as, as, um, as kind of lawyers would oftentimes take on clients. They, they're often, these white lawyers are oftentimes taking on clients in cases there where they do stand to, um, to make a significant um, profit um, from kind of representing um, these black litigants. Um, and so cases where, where black litigants are fighting over a bequest um, that they've been left um, and white lawyers who are representing them stand to get a significant proportion of that bequest. Um, if their black client wins the case. But it's not always just about money. Um, I found um, that they are taking on some cases as well that don't involve um, large amounts of money. And there's a few different factors going on here. One is kind of they're kind of in, in documents where they're talking about why they're taking on um, these black litigants. They're oftentimes um, using kind of ideas of professionalism so that um, ideas of kind of that they felt it was important for um, for these litigants to be represented in some way. So I think there's a certain kind of element of that. A certain element of paternalism also comes out in their writings about these cases where they see themselves as kind of these elite whites who are kind of helping these vulnerable um, African-Americans who at times from kind of um, other whites who kind of taken advantage of them. So this very kind of paternalistic language at times comes into place. And far less often do they actually seem to actually sympathize with the African-American litigants um, or have kind of some ideas of African-American equality. Um, In fact, most of these lawyers um, in the decades after the Civil War had fought um, for the Confederate side, had oftentimes been officers um, in the Confederate Army, so they're not—they're not doing this um, because of some ideological um, sympathy with their black clients. Um, but I think it's important to note that the white lawyers who are taking on these black litigants um, don't seem to just have practices of um, black clients. They oftentimes seem to be quite um, well-known, well-respected um, lawyers in their communities who um, largely represent whites and are um, taking on a few cases involving um, black litigants. That's fascinating. And I think that, you know, one of the points you make is that these cases are so much more woven into, I think, the legal infrastructure of the South than we had perhaps realized. That's a really important point in the book. And just like there's this negotiation going on, of course, between African-Americans and the white lawyers you mentioned in particular, but also white citizens. Um, in what ways does this kind of 
through individual action, through collective action, uh, tear down white supremacy? And in what ways does it kind of reify it? Um, and is the judiciary in this case an impartial kind of actor, as I think the public often thinks it is? Or is it something that's actively um, negotiating this sort of dialogue that people are essentially having through these cases? This is a really important question as well. And it's a complicated question because I think that at times these cases are reinforcing white supremacy, but sometimes just as they're reinforcing white supremacy, they're also kind of working to tear it down um, in certain ways. So I think that it's it's doing both um, in some ways, which really kind of reinforces um, the complicated kind of nature of African-Americans' um, relationship with the courts. Um, because I think it oftentimes, by um, as scholars kind of look at what's occurring in criminal cases with African-Americans, it's very clear to kind of see white supremacy operating. And in these kind of criminal cases, you can see how, um, how kind of the white elites are working to kind of control African-Americans, to kind of make money off of African-Americans' labors, um, to criminalize African-Americans. And in all of these ways, it's very much kind of supporting white power and white supremacy. But I would argue that in these civil cases, African-Americans are kind of asserting their legal rights, asserting kind of their economic rights um, throughout this period um, from 1865 to 1950 um, in these cases. Um, And in that way, I would say that it's challenging white supremacy. Um, And in many ways, African-Americans in their kind of testimony in the courtroom are challenging this as well because they're oftentimes um, drawing on legal knowledge to kind of um, to, to kind of make their claims as they testify. Um, and they're presenting themselves as economically competent um, in many of these cases. Um, and so there's ways that this, these challenge kind of these ideas of black inequality. Um, and on an individual level, it's challenging um, individual whites um, oftentimes as they're um, seeking to kind of exercise supremacy um, over um, their former slaves, over their employees, but at the same time, I would argue that one of the reasons why these cases are allowed to go forward um, is at times they do reinforce um, white supremacy itself. Um, so particularly, I would argue these cases during the first two decades of the 20th century, um, where in order to kind of litigate a case against a white during this time, African-Americans had to present themselves some pretty unequal ways that really kind of reinforce um, the disfranchisement and segregation that have just occurred and that whites kind of said were necessary because of kind of the inequality of African-Americans. Um, but even as kind of that's occurring, um, African-Americans are still kind of asserting their legal rights um, through these cases. So I think in many ways um, it's doing both. That's great. And I think you mentioned a few minutes ago the distinction sort of between the criminal cases um, that whites are largely bringing against blacks in these civil cases. Um, Do African-Americans fare better in civil courts than they do in criminal courts at the time? Or do we see something uh, roughly kind of uh, equal going on? This is an important question that I had myself. And um, as a result, um, I ended up actually analyzing criminal cases um, in two of the states. Um, two of the eight states 
that I looked at across this entire period as well. So in the states of Alabama um, and in Georgia, um, I did a thorough analysis of um, of the cases um, involving kind of black defendants um, during this period. And I found some interesting things. So to begin, I found that, um, that African-American uh, litigants were far more likely to um, enter appellate courts, so enter these state Supreme Courts in criminal cases um, than whites were. Um, they're only, whites are kind of um, only kind of entering these courts in maybe approximately a tenth or so of these cases, whereas um, a much kind of larger proportion of the cases African Americans are bringing, um, approximately two thirds or so, um, are um, criminal um, criminal cases. So, um, but kind of within the criminal cases um, that they are litigating in state supreme courts, they're much more likely to have a favorable outcome um, than in the criminal cases um, that they are defendants in in these criminal um, courts. And um, while kind of they're, able, they're, they're winning approximately 59% of their civil cases, they're only winning um, about half of that, um, a little more than half of that um, in their um, criminal um, cases. And interestingly, um, also, they're, only, they're winning kind of far less than that in cases that um, explicitly are kind of challenging um, the system of kind of racial discrimination, civil cases that travel. Um, so in kind of civil cases that are largely kind of seen as unthreatening um, by whites that are largely kind of brought by individuals over um, issues that are just going to kind of benefit that particular individual, they're winning the majority of their cases. But, it, and, but in cases, criminal cases um, in particular, and in these cases over kind of racial justice, that whites have kind of more, their whites kind of would probably have seen as having broader implications um, for their society. They are not um, winning um, nearly as many cases. So there is kind of this really kind of stark um, difference between civil and criminal cases. That's a very stark difference and a huge disjuncture, really. How does gender factor into these cases? Do we see differences between uh, black male and female litigants or within the courtroom? What is happening here? In addition to these cases being racialized, how are they um, obviously gendered as well? I think one of the important things about these cases is they're not only kind of just involving ordinary kind of um, African-Americans and are this very kind of grassroots kind of action, um, but they're also very much in, involving kind of large numbers of black women. So I found that um, in 41% of the cases um, that I look at, I found that black women uh, were one of the litigants um, in in the case, which at a time where black women for much of this period don't have um, the vote, um, the kind of um, political um, participation in the South um, is largely um, male. It's extraordinary, I think, that within kind of this one branch of government, um, that black women are playing really kind of important um, roles in almost half um, of these cases. And the few kind of interesting things that kind of come out of their participation, one, I think, is the, um, the very kind of deeply kind of embedded role um, that black women have in, um, in the economy. 
um, in the South. So they are very much kind of um, buying property, selling property, bringing cases over property. Um, they're making um, contracts, um, having transactions. Um, they're very kind of um, participating in kind of the economic um, life of the South. And this really kind of comes out um, in their cases. They're also kind of showing a great deal of legal knowledge um, in, a, in these cases. Um, some of the cases where kind of um, black litigants are, are kind of showing kind of the most kind of knowledge um, of the legal system, of kind of the law around their cases are actually kind of cases um, litigated by black women. So they really kind of have, in, in a number of these cases, this deep kind of knowledge of cases. Uh, one of my favorite cases um, involving a black woman um, is a case um, brought by a woman named Mary Ray um, in North Carolina. And her father had left her, um, had been willed by his, his former master or been deeded by his former master um, a piece of property um, and in, in their town. And um, over kind of when the former master died, the executor of the will um, claimed that the deed of property had just been for her father's life. Um, and at that point, um, her mother and brother um, bring a case to try to regain the property um, but they're unsuccessful. And at this case, and then kind of several years later, um, this, this black woman, Mary Ray, um, then brings a case um, to try to recover the, the property. And over kind of the time that has occurred, um, the local courthouse and jail um, have actually been built um, on this property. Um, and the case that she brings um, at the beginning, at kind of um, the turn of the, the turn of the century, um, is against kind of the county commissioners of her county. So she's an incredibly kind of bold case that she's bringing against um, the county commissioners of her county to try to regain the land um, that the courthouse in jail is on. And she's very kind of bold in her case. Um, she, um, she kind of argues and, try and eventually gains kind of removal to another county, but she kind of is really speaking kind of truth to power in the case. She's arguing kind of about why, about how difficult it is for her to kind of um, bring this case, all of the obstacles um, that are being put into the place, like witnesses not showing up um, and kind of court terms, kind of not hearing the case and um, very kind of boldly kind of speaking to kind of these commissioners about the ways that they're kind of trying to block her case from proceeding. And unfortunately, she doesn't um, win the case um, in the end, but it's a a very kind of powerful um, case um, by this black woman who takes on these very powerful men um, in her county. Um, along kind of those lines, um, finally, I also kind of argue that um, during the first kind of decades of the 20th century, that black women are at times able to bring um, cases that are more difficult um, for, for black men. Um, to bring. So as it becomes more and more difficult for African-American litigants to bring cases um, and the kinds of cases they bring are narrowed um, during the first decades of the 20th century. Um, it's African-Americans who are able to kind of present themselves as vulnerable, kind of as in need of help, um, as having less knowledge um, and as unthreatening um, to whites who are still able to kind of bring to litigate cases. And women 
um, are particularly successful in kind of um, litigating many of the cases during this time period and at times are able to make kind of claims that men are not. So in personal injury cases, um, several women are bringing cases over emotional injury, um, which is a harder kind of case um, to litigate and which no men that I found are able to bring. Um, so they so they are kind of at a time when black men are criminalized and have been disfranchised. Black women are stepping in in some ways and bring and kind of um, using their gender to bring kinds of cases that would be more difficult for black men to be able to bring. That is fascinating. I think really reframes the way in which we think about not just race, but gender during this period as well. As we wind up the interview, can you tell us a little bit about how this changes maybe the ways in which scholars see the overall um, kind of arc of African-American history? What does it add for us? What does it texture a little bit more? Absolutely. So I think there's several important ways that I would argue that these cases um, work to kind of reframe um, how legal scholars and and historians um, have, have seen this period. Um, for one, I'd argue that it reimagines African-Americans' ability to, no- to negotiate government institutions um, during this period of Jim Crow. So there's this idea that kind of um, African-Americans are negotiating and kind of working within government institutions during Reconstruction. Um, they're accessing kind of um, state legislatures, Congress. Um, but as time goes by, as they lose kind of voting rights, there's been this idea that they're largely kind of working outside of um, and they're largely resisting um, outside of government institutions um, in, in the South. Um, and they're only kind of really starting to kind of work within government institutions again um, in kind of the period leading up to the mid-20th century civil rights movement as they begin to kind of work to regain voting rights. And so I would argue that that kind of, I would argue that kind of what I'm showing is in fact kind of um, showing that they're able to kind of negotiate institutions um, throughout this period, um, not just kind of um, when they have the vote. And so it really kind of um, refigures African-American um, political participation as not kind of stopping and starting, but as continuing continuously, even during kind of the depths of Jim Crow, but as shifting um, as as kind of um, society shifts, their political, their, the kinds of court cases they're able to litigate shift, but the court cases themselves are continuing throughout this period. So it shows this kind of continuous assertion of rights and working within institutions um, throughout this period. Another thing that I would um, I would say that kind of these court cases also do um, is to show legal action in a much more kind of grassroots um, way. So oftentimes legal action for kind of scholars that have looked at kind of legal action through organizations, um, such as the NAACP and kind of earlier organizations. It's been a legal action of elites that's kind of um, being decided on um, by kind of a small group of kind of well-educated um, people. And oftentimes it's around test cases that are being kind of very carefully thought out. Um, and the legal action that my book looks at and that these civil cases show is instead a very kind of grassroots legal action where ordinary individuals, many people who've been former slaves, um, have not have had very little education, 
um, are bringing legal action over economic matters that matter deeply to their own lives. And so these aren't kind of very carefully thought out test cases. These are things that are going to kind of shape of these African-Americans and, um, and their families. Um, and, and so it's showing legal action um, in a grassroots legal action that really kind of hasn't been um, viewed um, in the same way. One other thing that I would argue that, um, that this work does is to complicate our understanding of the courts and the court's kind of um, relationship with, um, with kind of oppressed groups, groups that are kind of um, seeking rights. Because my work shows that the courts are not just oppressing um, these groups. They are um, exercising white supremacy and kind of in, in criminal cases in particular, um, they are kind of leading to vastly kind of unjust outcomes. But there's this more complicated relationship where at times oppressed groups can also use the courts and use the very structure of the courts that, um, that values precedent, that um, is somewhat kind of removed from um, political shifts, and to, to use this um, to kind of gain rights, to kind of, um, kind of challenge um, inequality um, in certain ways. And um, I would argue that kind of African-Americans did recognize kind of this complicated um, relationship that they had with the courts and both saw it as a place where at times they could gain, they could gain kind of um, victories in civil action, but also a place where it oftentimes did lead to vast injustices that had real income, real kind of um, impacts um, on their lives. The last thing um, that I would just say is that this is also kind of in some ways helping us to understand why African-Americans are repeatedly turning to the courts um, throughout this period, and particularly kind of in the civil rights movement. Um, So, for instance, kind of um, we see at the end of the 19th century when these segregation and disfranchisement efforts are really kind of really taking off that a number of African-Americans are challenging them in the courts in cases such as Plessy versus Ferguson. And then we see when the NAACP is founded in 1909 that um, a major kind of thrust of the NAACP is going to be legal action. And in some ways, I think it's been somewhat hard to understand why why African-Americans are repeatedly kind of turning to the courts um, and why why they believe that perhaps they could be successful in the courts. Why, why the courts rather than kind of some other kind of method? And if you just look at what's occurred in criminal cases, if you just look at um, their cases where they are making arguments over um, racial discrimination, it's a bit hard to understand um, why they would turn to the courts. But if you broaden out the view and you also look at kind of the civil action uh, that they've been taking part in since um, since the Civil War and the ways that they have kind of very much been negotiating on um, the courts and at times very successfully, it's easier to understand why the courts are kind of um, are kind of a major center of um, where African Americans are trying to kind of turn the fight to in kind of the civil rights movement. Melissa, that's fascinating and sets us up so well, I think, for, like you said, the mainstream uh, kind of civil rights movement in which 
so many scholars have picked up uh, what African-American litigants are doing, um, particularly in, um, as you said, through major organizations through, such as the NAACP, but really working at a very grassroots level during this period, kind of between the end of slavery and the beginning of civil rights. We are just about out of time, but if you have a few minutes, can you tell us a bit about what you are working on in the wake of this book? Absolutely. So I'm actually um, continuing kind of to look at um, African-Americans litigation, but I've begun to look at, um, at their criminal cases. And I've been thinking in, in particular in light of the Black Lives Matter movement and kind of um, the challenges of the Black Lives Matter movement um, to kind of police violence, to injustices within the criminal justice system. I noticed um, as I was looking at criminal cases for, um, for my most recent project, Litigating Across the Color Line, that in a number of these civil case, criminal cases, um, beginning kind of um, right after the Civil War, that African Americans um, in their appeals in criminal cases are challenging police violence um, and they're challenging um, injustices within the criminal justice system, including kind of the lack of representative juries, um, the lack of due process, um, not having time to um, talk with lawyers, as well as kind of incredible violence um, that the police. Um, are are using against them in order to gain confessions. So my current project is actually thinking about how African Americans use the courts um, to challenge um, police violence, to challenge um, injustice in the criminal justice system. And I'm actually kind of using some of the insights into African American litigation that I've gained. Um, in my most recent project as I begin the next project. And in particular, I've been thinking quite a bit about how African-Americans are shaping um, their their criminal um, litigation. And in civil cases, it's much more, it's much easier for African-Americans to um, shape their cases. There's a much longer kind of time frame um, and, they oftentimes had lawyers who are much better able to represent them. And so it's very clear in civil cases that African-Americans are, um, are very much kind of working with their lawyers in their testimony to kind of shape their cases. But this has been looked at far much less in criminal cases because it's, it's occurring to kind of a slighter degree. Um, but because I noticed it um, in civil cases, I began to also notice in criminal cases the way that African-Americans um, are often, oftentimes shaping their testimony to kind of challenge injustice, to kind of speak to the law, to kind of speak to kind of racial attitudes. And they have, got, they have far more kind of limitations uh, in doing this in criminal cases. Um, but they still are doing this to a certain extent. And I would argue that kind of their challenges in the criminal justice system are really kind of important um, prehistory in some ways to the current challenges today um, that the Black Lives Matter movement and other groups um, are, are kind of arguing for. Well, we certainly look forward to that prehistory as well. That sounds fascinating and will certainly add to our understanding 
um, the groundwork for which you've laid so well here. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. The book that we've been discussing is Litigating Across the Color Line, Civil Cases Between Black and White Southerners from the End of Slavery to Civil Rights. It uh, has recently been published by Oxford Uni University Press, and the author, of course, who's been kind enough to join us, Melissa Milewski from the University of Sussex. Melissa, thank you so much, and uh, we look forward to future discussions with you as the next work proceeds. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to talk to you about my book. <laughs>